Welcome to Move the Needle, the human performance podcast with your hosts, Hunter Eisenhower and Mike Sullivan. Quick preface before the episode, when we recorded this one, Kyle was working for Strive Performance. Since then, he has taken a position with the Arizona Cardinals as a sports science coordinator and assistant strength and conditioning coach. We do dive into some of these specifics at Strive, but wanted anyone who tried to find Kyle now to know where to look. Best of luck to Kyle as he jumps into this relatively new position. Enjoy the episode. All right, so today on the Move the Needle podcast, we have Kyle Sammons, who is currently the Vice President of Performance for Strive Technology. Um, he was formerly at University of Washington, working in a sports science and strength and conditioning role. Um, and today we're going to talk a little bit about his his baby, the Beast Factory. So Sam, <laughs> just give us a quick intro on yourself if I missed anything, and then we'll roll with some questions. Yeah, no. So Kyle Sammons, I am now the uh, vice president of performance for Strive Tech. Um, kind of rewinding time here a little bit. My background is played college football, played at University of Nevada, um, experienced some injuries. I was done playing, ruptured both patellar tendons. I broke my collarbone. So I think that's important because a lot of this revolves around injuries and how to repair athletes quicker. Um, but was done playing football went and uh, worked at University of Nevada as a strength coach, worked my way up, was in charge of men's basketball, soccer, helped program for football, and then jumped on board at University of Washington as an assistant strength coach, came on board there as, you know, a strength coach and an applied sports scientist. Um, that was 1A, 1B of my job title. And then that bled into becoming the director of sports science and a quasi um, reconditioning specialist with all of our return to play athletes. and. Then I have now jumped on board at Strive, and I'm now the uh, VP of Performance at Strive. Give a give, give a quick little explanation of what Strive is, what you guys do. Yeah, so Strive also, is Super CMG. Um, I'll answer the Strive Tech question first, then go into patellar tendons. Okay. Um, so what is Strive Tech? It is a wearable tech company. We embed Super CMG sensors into compression shorts. And then we have a traction accelerometer in the belt line. So we can actually get muscle activity and then also two external values of how well the person's accelerating, decelerating, or locomoting essentially. So you're getting kind of like a dual picture of internal, external values of what's going on with the athlete. Awesome. Um, patellar tendon cool. rupture, great question. This has kind of led me to where I am now with working with a lot of you know, athletes that have been damaged, let's call it that, with tendinopathy or ruptures. Um, I played college football, had patellar tendonitis in both my knees. And, you know, the old adage is just take anti-inflammatories, rest, um, get stronger, and should take care of itself. Didn't happen. Um, still had knee pain when I was done playing. And then I just started lifting, almost just like getting really strong muscularly wise. So that's really important to know because my muscles essentially became really freaking strong compared to my tendons. I wasn't doing any kind of like dynamic movements, plyometrics, fast eccentrics. And so I was playing basketball actually the first time went up for, uh, I would call it a dunk, but it wasn't going to be a dunk. And uh, my knee literally just blew out. And so what happened was, is the patellar tendon just got cut in half. Um, it was just below so it wasn't the quad tendon it was actually the patellar tendon so it was just below my actual patella um and then that pulled the actual like 
patella up into your quad. Um, so that took about eight months to rehab. And then I did the second one, literally almost 11 months to date on the other side. And that was messing around with one of our athletes at the University of Nevada. Uh, once again, doing dynamic movements. And yeah, we banged knees. That probably was part of why it ruptured. But also too, once again, having some sort of underlying pathology of my patellar tendons, just weaken the tendon, um, which we can get into here probably more of why it took place. Um, and so that one, I came back in five months. So kind of, I, I know what people go through and they blow apart. So let's put it that way. Oh, that is brutal. All right. So first, first question for you, um, beast factory, some of the world knows about it. Some of the world doesn't know about it. Can you just give us an overarching, uh, framework of what the beast factory is? and how you utilize it. And this can be this can be in maybe a little bit more broad simple terms and then we can get kind yeah. of minutia of it as we go. Yeah, so Beast Factory kind of took a life of its own in a sense. We didn't come up with that term. Now I say we as in myself and um the assistant I work with, we kind of put it together essentially like we were on whiteboards like noodling ideas and mapping it out but the beast factory term actually came from our players because they said, if you go through what Sammons is putting you through, you turn into a beast. Um, and so they started calling it beast factory, but overarching, what is it? It's you're looking at essentially the muscle, the joints, the whole limbs together, and then the whole body and like how they all interact. And you're essentially looking at it from a load velocity profile, um, but also too from a muscle force velocity perspective. So eccentric to concentric, isometric, lengthening, shortening, and how do we overload those to withstand certain forces? That's kind of the Beast Factory's methodology. There's four parts to it that you have to go in sequence for reasons because of motor learning, doing stuff to the tendon and tissue together, et cetera. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. I love it. So now you just touched on it. There's there's certain exercises not certain exercises, certain uh, principles that you do in sequence. Um, talk about that sequence you use and then why you use that sequence. Yeah, so if we just look at it from, oh, going back into time, looking at AV Hills, just force velocity relationship of muscle. We do know that isometrics are, you are a little bit less strong than eccentrics as the muscle starts to lengthen and as it starts to shorten, you actually can't produce as much force because of the overlapping of the actual soft tissue itself. So the myosin and actin. Long story short, what this means is you start with high force and then you go into higher force as limbs start to pick up through the phases. So it goes isometric, eccentric, fast eccentric, dynamic. And what this is looking at is in a very simplistic form, it's speed start to pick up, forces start to pick up as you start to get more dynamic and that's going to expose soft tissue to higher forces, different interactions. The tendon, of the muscle is going to respond differently. The brain's going to respond differently. So we've started to migrate more towards it, calling the neuromechanical framework, but long story short, it's the beast factory because we've seen people go through it and have, you know, up to 50% greater return on their investment from injuries. So I listened recently to your uh, presentation through 1080 on your RTP for your two Achilles uh, injuries at Washington. And 
um, you know, one of the things I thought of was, was this, was Beast Factory something that you had like the kind of framework for, and it was really born because of the success that you had putting these guys through it on these Achilles tears, or was it something that you already know, knew and were using and therefore we're just able to successfully apply it to those two guys. Cause that no, turnaround think... for there, all those, those Achilles injuries from sit for me, what is typically right a year at least to six months yeah. is incredibly fat. Yeah. Yeah. So I think long story short, hopefully I can answer that question. We toyed around with certain things and we started refining it through our Achilles guys. I'll be honest. Like we didn't have it ironed out before the Achilles ruptures at all. We had some like certain framework and ideas what we wanted. We did know that there's certain traits that you need to keep in mind when you're working with athletes, especially return to play athletes, but it re helped us refine it essentially. Um, and those Achilles guys kind of were the displaying factor of how it all kind of came together. And we've used it with other guys too. So I'll be honest around that one. It's not just Achilles. We've also done it with torn pec, hamstring strains, torn ACLs. So um, those two guys were just the highlight because of how fast they came back. And it was two of the same injuries, Achilles ruptures, but one was an avulsion and one was a mid-tendon. And so people are going to argue one's a bone, one's a tendon, but yet they came back at the exact same time and had very similar responses. Um, so we started by looking at a ton of like eccentric and isometric research. That's where it all kind of started. And we started seeing these giant trends, but also to these responses and significant factors of holding postures and generating a ton of muscular force to creating tension internally and how that actually can cause positive adaptation in the tendon and the muscle. So what was the expected timeline for those guys pre or I guess immediately after their injuries? Nine months. And so we sped it up an extra three months. To be honest with you, it could have been even faster. We could have probably done it in five. So take us through, and this, this is where we can get maybe a little bit more into like the, the minutia of it, but take us through those, either both or one of the two Achilles um, rehabs and kind of like walk us through what that six months looked like and take as much time or as little time as you want to do that. But give us an idea of like a case study of what you did, how you applied this system um, and how you guys, how you got these guys back so quickly. Yeah. I think the first question was, are we okay with nine to 18 months being the time frame to get somebody back? I think that's what this is the first question we need to ask is, is that okay with people? And if that's okay, you're leaving money on the table in my eyes, especially working pro athletes. But um, with that being said, we started with something very basic. It was unloaded, just isometrics. And you're seeing responses day in and day out. So once we got okay to do certain factors from the athletic training staff, med staff, like we always met with them daily. So let's keep that in mind too. Like we weren't just run rogue, like, we were meeting them daily, kind of going a plan, like telling them kind of like what we're thinking, getting green lighted on certain factors. And so um, we know that as limb speeds are zero, it's pretty safe to do things. And you can get neural implications and you can get mechanical implications. Um, and so very early in our RTP is we were doing yielding isometrics, um, holding for 30 seconds and trying to get to ranges of motion that 
we're challenging the brain and you'd see that by the tremors. And that's just the brain remodeling, trying to figure out how much force needs to go to that tissue area to maintain that posture. Um, and so we literally hung out in isometrics for a long time in their lower extremities. And then we'd go and do upper body stuff. Um, but for a long time, probably the first two months, two and a half months, all it was doing was just trying to figure out how to, to load these Achilles injuries through isometrics, yielding isometrics. And so we started unloaded. So seated, just good old fashioned plantar flexion knee extension. And then we went into other factors trying to attack the soleus, which is a different version of that. And then we started adding, you know, our gravity. So that's outstanding. And then we started adding load from gravity and our axial load on a bar or kettlebells or dumbbells. And so we we're gradually just trying to load this thing every single day. And this is coming off some research with frequency loading. Um, but that's kind of where we started and we kind of hung out in ISOs for a very long time. And that's because they weren't cleared yet to do certain things. And then we got into, once they got, once they got cleared, we then migrated. Let me ask you one thing real quick before you move on. How soon after this Achilles rupture were you doing these yielding ISOs? Unloaded. So it was unloaded body weight. There's no load going through the actual like foot. It okay. was just internal essentially force of the actual muscle which starts yanking on the tendon that was two and a half weeks after surgery which what is like the typical loading time of a achilles rupture whenever uh like how long are you supposed to wait supposed to in quotation <sighs> because there's not necessarily but um like what have you heard of like you should wait three months uh, six uh, six to eight weeks essentially like just let it remodel. And I think this is something that we need to kind of think about is like, is that the best thing for that athlete? And there's really good research that you just have to comb through to figure this one out that immobilization can probably, it doesn't have the best outcome. Um, whereas load tendons love load. And that's a very like broad term. What does load mean is it doesn't always mean just throw weight on somebody coming out of the surgery. It doesn't mean that you can create internal load and that's through muscular force of how the muscle's functioning with the tendon. Got it. And what were your markers for like um, progression for going from seated, unloaded to standing to loaded for those isometrics? Can you do one set for 30 seconds and hold a certain posture? Yes or no? It's pretty basic. Um, and I think a lot of people are gonna fall in this trap, like give me a protocol. If the protocol was day in and day out, your nervous system adjusts essentially to what's it being exposed to. And so that's where I think protocols can kind of get a little weird. Whereas we were just literally tapping in every single day, doing something with them to challenge the nervous system. And if once they could hold, you know, a plantar flexion for 30 seconds, can they do two sets? Can you do three sets? Can you do four sets? Can they do feet on the ground now doing soleus work still seated? So it's unloading them. Um, and that's kind of the progression. And once they got to do that, can we then add an external force where they're pressing into something that's trying to push them into a certain posture and making sure that there's no pain. We kept that always in mind. Um, and so it goes back to, can they can actually one, can they actually contract that muscle from the brain to the muscle? And then two, can they hold those postures? So you're looking at plantar flexion, dorsiflexion and different knee positions, and then just progressively slowly start loading it. All right, so but I, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, the, the med step also had certain markers, too, that they wanted to see from, like, 
an actual position, range of motion standpoint too. So we are working tandem with that. Cool. So you went from yielding ISOs. Now take us to the next step. You got load on them internally. Then you added some external load with dumbbells, kettlebells. Where'd you go next? After they're able to tolerate that stuff. So our main goal was, could they do just a good old fashioned knee extension heel lift with two times body weight? That was like the gold standard goal to get them to. Now it took time, but once we got there, we knew that they're gonna be able to tolerate certain things from the ground reaction forces. We knew that. Um, and so then we started trying to add more load to them in different positions, get into deeper knee bends, so holding split squat. Um, so now you're changing the joint angles. Once they could do that, then we started going into very slow eccentrics. So now we're trying to overload the nervous system and the actual soft tissue together. And then we hung around those two phases. So the ISO and the eccentrics, which eccentric and ISOs, there's branches within that, but um, we hung around there for about three months in the lower extremities. And then we started doing very slow walking with load, which people are like, why are you doing that? You slow down limb speeds, you increase the actual like external load, pretty safe. You just got to look at some research on that one. So now when we talk about this, this is something that we've, we've had conversations about this before, but something that's new for me that you just mentioned that I didn't even consider, which I guess I should have is in a return to play sense, you layer these sequences on one another. Like the whole framework goes ISO eccentric, fast eccentric dynamic. However, in a return to play setting, you obviously can't take an Achilles rupture straight to dynamic. It's not possible. Yeah. You're layering yeah. these sequences and almost using them as like a check off this isometric yielding to a certain amount of load, check off these slow eccentrics. Now we move into fast eccentrics. Now we move into dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. So that's because we just need to understand like how the tendon and muscle are interacting, especially after surgery. Like we know those fast movements is the most aggravating. And so we're not going to expose them to that because the fastest movements of the limbs are going to expose the soft tissue to higher eccentric demands. And so what we're seeing here is we're literally laying on ISOs eccentric because when they go to dynamic, it's going to require X amount of eccentric capacities. And if we don't go through this framework, we're not going to get them to withstand those capacities. They're going to break down again. And so it's a really easy system with injured athletes, with the healthy athletes, it looks a little different. You can do all those phases in, in one, whereas injured athletes, you're layering them on based off the feedback you're getting. And you're trying to have day in and day out, day out training ability of the athlete. So high frequency, low volume. And that's shown to have great return on investment with our um, tendons. So that's kind of like why we started coming through all this research. And we're like, okay, cool. Then we started plotting things out. We started mapping it out. We started looking at you know, all this muscle physiology. Um, so. So for, for the slowing down limb speed section, like, which makes sense, you're slowing down the limb speed. If you, and I said, I, in that presentation, you, you talked about some of the work that you did at 30 kilograms on the 1080. If you could have gone heavier on the 1080, like if you could have quadruple stranded it to like 35, 40, like again, reducing the limb speed, could you have pushed them to loads like that? Yeah, probably because what we did is we started on that first like so three months, that first day of the 1080, where we got the green light to have them do resisted walking. We didn't go straight from zero to 30 kilos because 30 kilos that's roughly 190 pounds of sled weight right. on a sled, hypothetical, right? So yeah. we started with 10 kilos, 15 kilos, 20 kilos, 25 kilos, 30, and we just kept seeing the feedback 
of forces right to left limb on the 1080. And that's why the 1080 is so beneficial is because you can get left and right forces on the limbs. And we would just seeing the feedback that they could tolerate more. We kept checking in with them. You good? Sure. Keep loading it. Keep loading it. Keep loading it. So yeah, start heavier where I think people go the other way. They start lighter. What we yeah, know about sure. that is the limb speeds pick up and the eccentric demands pick up earlier in the return to play, which probably is not beneficial. So we flipped it over. And that's the way to think about it is slow people down, increase the forces through the limbs, the soft tissue to create the change you want. And there's really good research showing that, that if you don't strain and stress the tissue and the, and the tendon together, you're not really going to get the adaptation you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Like initially thinking about it, I would have thought the opposite. Like I feel like most people do, but then mm -hmm. hearing it talked about like that, like it makes a lot of sense. And like your limbs are moving slow when you're, when you're at 30 kilograms, that's for sure. Weightlifting is the safest sport and research has shown that. So I don't know why we keep having these, these conversations with people when it's like, just look at some research, stop reading books, start reading research. So at, at three months, you met, you had these guys on the 1080 walking. Yeah. And then that slowly just progressed limb speed until they were five and a half, six months sprinting. We went into overspeed. So yeah. that was, that was at the six month mark, five and a half month mark. You went into overspeed stuff. Very last thing we did was overspeed. And the reason we did that is so kind of backtracking a little bit. Yeah. We started, we hung around with the heavier loads, kind of what we just talked about. Um, what Mike was hitting on was perfect. Like we, we hung around those heavy loads to make sure they could tolerate it without us migrating too soon to these faster limb speeds. And so probably 75% of their program, we hung around this like higher force component with moderate limb speeds, because that's going to have the greatest return on investment with tendons. And that's through the isometrics. That's through the fast, or sorry, the slow eccentrics through the super max eccentrics through the heavy walking, the resisted walking to them almost like doing bounding. So a longer just push into the ground to them actually like running. And so it's still slowing them down the limb speed wise because of the external load. We didn't start getting into these faster loads until about four months, four and a half months. And then we started really making these huge strides because we layered the foundation. That's kind of the way to look at this is the, the beast factory methodology it's like building a house without skipping steps. You're making sure you're covering your basis so this athlete can go into the wild and expose himself to these demands. Within that, you talked about like the overspeed. And I saw you guys, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you pulled, you ended up pulling them at, at up to 10 kilograms. Is that right? We were pulling, I can just speak in 10 kilograms roughly. Yes, that was pulling them right around 22 miles an hour. And you're talking about guys that tapped out at 18 and a half before we started training them. So was that like, was that number a marker that you were trying to get them to that 22 miles per hour? And what, what was kind of pushing you toward that numbers? Like, cause you said, I think you said like 130% um, of yep. their, of their running speed. So what was it about those markers that was important to you? The exposure to the, the actual Achilles tendon. So we know at those high, high, high speeds, you're going to have higher frequency. You're going to have higher turnover. You're going to have higher ground reaction forces. And when they start doing that, they're going to have anywhere from six to 12 times, um, amount of body weight forces going through their limbs that's really important to know and that's just to understand like the tendon is going to be exposed then and we wanted to do that because if they're going to go play in a football game they need to be able to throw out a ton of force but also to be able to 
respond from those ground reaction forces that are climbing as they start to run faster. I think an important question to ask is once you got to that five month, six month stage, and you were doing these overspeed, more like advanced protocols, did you still hit them with ISOs, eccentrics, fast eccentrics on those yep. days? It's not just like check off yielding ISOs, never use it again, check off eccentric, never use it again. Once you get to that point, now you're just using the whole framework, correct? Yep. So the best way to think about it is we did like almost like block training with those phases with the return to play people because of their capabilities and trying to rebuild them. However, once they were good to do everything, their workout had an ISO, an eccentric, a fast eccentric, and a dynamic movement. And so that was our complex. We did it in the warm-up, and we looked at the ankle, the knee, and the hip joints, and we did a version of ISO, a version of eccentric, and a version of a fast eccentric in the warm-up with those three joints. And then they would go through their lift, and it was the exact same thing I just mentioned. It was an ISO that was a heavy ISO. It was either an EQI or a super max eccentric, and then I went into fast eccentrics, so now the braking forces are starting to climb because the limb speeds are picking up, there's less weight, you're getting some jerk acceleration on the tendon, and then you're looking at the dynamic, which is the ultimate, right? That's sprinting, that's changing directions, that's really high assisted load, if you wanted to put it that way too, so you can actually add a way where it's pulling them faster to speed those limbs up even more. And you just touched on it right there at the end with like the assisted and the dynamic, but just for our listeners to have some context, give us a quick example of what a day that actual lift portion would look like. Um, yeah. So I can kind of give you like broad, like overview, which I kind of went over in the 1080 talk, but if it's a lower body day, we would have certain emphasis of the day, but prime example, like we would do a hip thrust ISO for 30 seconds. We would then do a EQI with the trap bar. So you're standing up and slowly lowering over 45 seconds, standing on like a podium almost, so you can get a little bit lower to get those deeper ranges of motion in the knee and the hip. And then we would do a fast eccentric. So you can think about holding dumbbells, about 20 pounds in your hands, and you're up on your toes and you smack into a split stance position and throw on the brakes, stand back up. You do that on each leg, and then you would do like a split jump. Awesome. Hunter, if you ever have a chance to pull yourself on overspeed at 10 kilograms, I recommend you trying it because uh, it is intense. It is I got intense. my <laughs> I got my first exposure to a 1080 actually like last week. Um, they just got one at UC Davis and I went up there and played around with it and I didn't do any overspeed, but Hey, I'm down to try. <laughs> I get some, I'll pop a hammy to in the name of science. Yeah, no, I think I'm kind of just going back and like, I'll be honest with you guys, I'm not getting paid by 1080, but their, their system is really good for everything because you can get so much feedback and kind of going back, Mike, like, we were looking to see the actual curves on the overspeed training to make sure that they weren't having these massive kinematic errors. We'd also film it um, from the side just to make sure they weren't one overstriding and two getting exposed to these like faulty patterns we weren't looking for. And so we started really light on the overspeed, which was hundred percent of their max, which at that point in time, it was almost like 85 of their max because they were running faster than previously being healthy. I mean, we got them to exceed, you know, 20 miles an hour and some change. Whereas before the highest they ran was 18 and some change. So. Awesome. So like more, a little more generally speaking, um, I have worked with a handful of athletic training staffs and I know a handful of athletic trainers who aren't like the most open-minded about like strength and conditioning coaches. 
trying to suggest RTP protocols, right? Especially if it is like, hey, let's take this like pretty severe long-term injury and let's make it three months earlier, right? So like for you and your team, what was the process like trying to onboard an athletic training staff and get behind like, hey, we're gonna try to make this happen in, you know, two thirds amount of time as it typically does? Yeah, I think so. That wasn't like our, our main goal wasn't like, okay, let's get them back in five months. It just, they started progressing so rapidly because we were putting them through, but we were meeting with the med staff and the athletic training staff daily, just kind of going what we're doing and why. And it was us coming to them with like, Hey, we started just combing through tons and tons of research. I mean, my desk looked like a bomb went off. My whiteboard had like scribbles all over it. Like we were really trying to solve this problem. And Aaron and myself, Aaron was my assistant, who was also a big piece of this, this pie. Um, we were just going through all this and just finding really good research and, and just kind of presenting it to them. Like, hey, here's what we're seeing from X, Y, and Z. This can be done in a very safe manner. Maybe we should start trying some of this stuff. What do you think? And they're really open. I give them credit. Like, they're really open to that. Um, I, I will say, like, not everybody's going to be open. Um, but... I think as long as there's open communication and collaboration, it's a really good start. Um, I think you are right. Like people tend to like silo each other within organizations and that, that gets kind of messy. And so we tried to bleed across athletic training and I was trying to meet with them daily, talk to them just so it was like, if I did go in there with some crazy ideas, they weren't going to be like shooting it down right away. They'd hear me out. I'd get on a whiteboard, kind of draw with them what's going on. They'd say, yeah, or nay. Um, but it was an education process for everybody. Is it a magnitude thing in forces or is it a rate of magnitude or is it how they're training? I don't know. You guys can answer that one. Probably a combination, but I'm probably going to err on the side of rate to a certain extent. I feel like it's very, very rarely just like a pure magnitude thing, you know? Like so many athletes are really, really strong. It's like their ability to coordinate, their ability to be rhythmic, their ability to handle handle forces quickly dissipate forces quickly i think very very rarely is an actual just like here's this gigantic sum of force so i just don't think mm -hmm. that that's out it's very often yep i think that's that's a really good like conversation in itself is just let's look at the ground reaction forces and how fast these injuries do take place but also too what are the what's the difference in ground reaction forces decel max velocity and acceleration very different those are all those are all three things we need to keep in mind. And if force equals mass times acceleration, like all we need to understand is that. And then Newton's third law, and we should be okay. Training athletes. How do you go about your, um, when you have an athlete and you want to train deceleration, what, what goes into that? What are the methods to that deceleration training? And why do you view it, um, in that light? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I think understanding deceleration is, the posture and the time constraints are really important to understand. Um, and so a lot of the times we train athletes in these so-called like full ranges of motion, but we're only exposing them to these ranges of motion for like milliseconds. Whereas that's where like the beast factory is the, the primal methodology of the beast factory is take joints and put them in extension and flexion at extreme ranges, get them really freaking strong at those extreme ranges with no joint movement and then start picking up the movements. That's deceleration. Because you're going from time no time constraint, really high forces, 
to a ton of time constraints and really high forces, that's going to mimic a deceleration, right? And so if you can't decelerate, you can't accelerate. And so that's where we've taken all this methodology and kind of flipped it on its head. So start with eccentric, start with depth drops, um, start with overload and eccentrics that way. You can do a lunge with some load or even accelerate in that lunge. Um, and you're just, a, you're just going after that trait. And the trait is higher ground reaction forces at really high speeds. So ultimately the beast factory is the framework that you use is just preparing for deceleration. And then once you get to fast eccentrics, that's training deceleration specifically. Specifically deceleration. We kind of like taking a step back a little bit too, is like the neural implications of eccentrics versus concentrics. Like we know that we can be anywhere from 20 to 40% stronger eccentrically than concentrically. And so one RMs kind of get thrown out the window now. Like what's a one RM? I don't know. Um, it, it can kind of help you, but you're losing sight of the eccentric. You're actually going to undertrain the eccentric quality and then you're probably exposing your athletes to injury. Absolutely. Now I'm going to hit you with a little curveball. Um, Love it. Let's do it. But it's something that, so you touched on motor learning earlier and that starts to like get my mind going on neurology and the brain. Talk to us about how you or did you layer on some of those neurology themes within the beast factory or do you feel that training in this sequence kind of um, incorporates the brain enough in that motor learning aspect to accomplish that does that make sense yeah i'm gonna try and answer this i'm not sure yeah. if i'm gonna answer it but i'll try it was a um, for sure so no 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 i think it's a really good question and i think too like going back to the beast factory methodology, there's a lot of neural implications embedded into it. And I think if we can just look up a forced position versus a forced task. Okay, let's unpack that. Forced position is a yielding isometric. A forced task is an overcoming isometric. Do we know the neural implications of those? Yes or no? Those two things are gonna have different implications in the brain. So that right there is going down neurology. The muscle spindles in the yielding ISO is very, very different feedback than an overcoming. And so Dustin Aronchik has done great work with the EQI work. And he has said in his research that yielding isometrics actually start to fatigue the, the synergistics and the antagonist muscles just as much as the antagonist or the agonist, sorry. Whereas the, the overcoming is solely like agonist. That's really about it. Why it's important to understand is because the yielding mimics sport. It mimics deceleration. It mimics joint stabilization. And you have to mimic that to decelerate. So now going into the ISO like category, like I think we've fallen in this trap that overcoming is like the king. I think we just need to know like the responses of them. Okay, going into like true neurology type work, Every session they started with, we did something for their hands and feet. So just looking at the endpoints essentially, and looking at the palmar reflexes and the plantar reflexes, and just making sure we desensitize those. Can they actually go through certain just movements of their fingers and their hands? Then we'll take them through certain joint positions. That's a lot of the work that Sean Sherman's been putting out. Great work that was embedded in our warm up, and so those are like the neurology aspects that we went through. For a curveball, great answer. 
hopefully it helps no that's that's awesome and something i was like uh interested about myself but um last question maybe on this topic is talk to us about how you used overcoming isos in this framework so you mentioned early on it was yielding isos did you transition mm -hmm. to overcoming isos at a certain point um and how do you use those yeah that's, a, that's another really good question and i think we just before we start programming these things we just need to know the implications we're going down and so our overcoming isos were layered in later in their return to play because of how much force you can generate through it. I just talked about the agonist muscles. Um, it's a very different strategy overcoming. Um, you can probably make your asymmetrical patterns worse doing overcoming than you can yielding. So we always just dumped in the yielding category for a long period of time. So that force position task, but there's really good research behind. Um, and we used kind of the, the overcoming as like the last layer that we started to do when they were doing their overspeed work and they're going to experience like some greater forces um, that we needed to kind of like save them for. So that's where the, the overcomings came in right around like five months. And you do dose those for like the last month of that process. It's about the last two weeks, three weeks. Yeah. Okay. We did like pin poles. We did split squat pin poles. We did some stuff for the, the calf and the soleus or so the gastroc and soleus, the foot. Yeah. Gotcha. So Kyle, last question um, for everybody. And I guess we can just use the, the umbrella of sports performance. Um, what is something that you do um, or you believe in that a majority of the field would disagree with? The framework I just talked about. <laughs> and the reason I'm kind of laughing is because it's taking a lot of this like methodology and kind of just re-engineering it and putting it in a way that it's, you have a lot of implications. And so a lot of people are going to be like, yielding ISOs don't do anything. Um, they're going to say, why do you do isometrics, eccentrics, fast eccentrics, dynamic, all in a move or in a, in a workout? Isn't that going to be too fatiguing? Don't you have too many variables at play? Aren't you confusing the brain? And kind of the step back and argument is, what is sport? Are they going to experience all these same mechanisms in sport? And if they are, why don't we train them that way? And we're not we're not going down the camp of the sports specificity in a sense like I'm going to load a basketball and have them shoot it. It's you're looking at the actual joint, the tissue, the limb, and the speeds and the interactions that those things are going to be exposed to in sports. And we're just trying to make the athletes more robust or more resilient or exceed expectations so they can go onto the court field and perform at their highest level. And so we can't lose sight of that. And I think that's where we've done a really good job is like we've taken out the sniper rifle and we've just really hit that where an athlete is going to go and lift with you and say an old way is, hey, we're going to do a lot of high force today in the weight room. But next thing you know, they're on the field going and doing change of direction work and running routes. Did that match up? No. And so we're preparing the athlete. And I think what you see is motor learning aspect. You have time constraints and no time constraints very different on the brain, but also too, very different from feed forward feedback implications. Um, and so it's gonna train the athlete to become stiffer, become more robust, generate more torque, generate more muscle forces, whatever you wanna call it, to go and excel at their sport, to be more resilient, to interact with the ground differently so that they can actually withstand those ground reaction forces. And so people are gonna say like, you need to be in a force phase for six to eight weeks and 
I mean, all, all that's unpacking is the neural components. So yeah, there, there's morphological things you need to do, but you're exposing these athletes to higher time constraints now with the ISOs, the EQIs, that's actually exceeding doing 10 reps in time with a lot of other returns on investment. Well, there you go. Beast Factory 101, Kyle Salmon. So I know that you're starting to get into the Instagram game a little bit. So tell the people where they can find you, how they can learn more um, if they wanted to reach out. Instagram handle is Kyle underscore Salmon's underscore. Yeah. Trying to get on your level, Hunter, you know, become an IG king. So I've just noticed Instagram, like you can touch a lot of people and it's probably my downfall. But that's my Instagram handle. Love it. Awesome. Well, Sammons, I want to thank you for coming on, taking your time and, and schooling us on the Beast Factory. Um, Absolutely. It was awesome. We appreciate it. Did, yeah, no, this is fun, man. Did you guys learn something? Absolutely. I feel like we've had in-depth discussions on this topic before. So I was like a little bit of review, but we came into this and I feel like I have a whole nother page of notes from stuff that I didn't pick up the first time. So. <laughs> a lot to unpack. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. That's I'm going sure. to re-listen to it for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot going on here. It took us a while to put it together and we're still refining it and we're still like doing a lot of this work. And um, yeah, this could probably be a whole other conversation as well. Well, maybe there's going to be a part two coming soon. Thank you guys for listening. Give us a like and a follow at MTN underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter and find us individually at Coach Mike Sully and at Hunter EIS underscore SP. See you guys next week.